This is Managing E-Learning with Dr. John Allickson and Matt Herpold. Hello, welcome. Thank you for joining another week of Managing E-Learning. I am ecstatic to introduce today's guest, Salisa Steele, co-founder and managing director for Tagoras. Salisa, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Now, you're, a, you're an accomplished poet. Is that true? I am a poet. I will own poet. The, <laughs> I'll leave accomplished up to uh, the eyes of, of the reader. But yeah, it's been interesting for me to kind of keep a finger in the poetry world. It's something I've been interested in for a long time. For me, I think it ties in with, with learning. It's a way to, to learn new things and by exploring them and, and trying to write them down. So it's That's in great. keeping with what we do at Leading Learning and Tagore's. Yeah, yeah, it's always good to be balanced to earning a living to uh, to really focusing on what you enjoy. So that's right, because there's definitely no money in poetry. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's start with you uh, updating us on Tagoras, and you also run, I assume, leading learning as well. And what you, what kind of role you play in that organization? Because I know that Jeff sometimes tends to overshadow Salisa Steele a little bit in the community, at least the one that we're part of, the association community. So you obviously play a big role. You want to tell us about it? Right. So as Matt mentioned, co-founded Tagoras with Jeff, um, and then more recently co-founded Leading Learning. And Jeff has been more kind of the public-facing um, presence of, of both Tagoras and Leading Learning over the years. But I'm certainly back there. Um, I've been really involved in our research efforts over the years and our publications. Um, we'll do, you know, original research on things like use of virtual conferences or, um, you know, sponsorship in, in webinars, and we'll make that information available. Um, we also have the Leading Learning podcast um, and play a very active role there. Jeff and I co-host that. We also uh, provide webinars and blog posts, and really, I'm really sort of focused on that media side of things and really just how can we help organizations improve their reach, revenue, and impact um, by providing some of the, the research and original thinking and case studies and whatever else we can do that really helps to just provide some of the information and ideas that might help organizations uh, as they try to improve what they're offering and, and doing for their profession, field, or industry. One of the things that have impressed me about your organization is the, the integrity. You've really, from an analyst and research standpoint, and you've really straddled that that line in terms of maintaining your integrity. And I think that's very impressive. Thank you, John. Yeah, we certainly do try to, to make sure that what we're providing is what we really believe in, right? That we're putting out information and ideas that we think really will help. And so you're right. There's a there is a degree of integrity that we really try to adhere to. With that in mind, if I get too promotional on our core stage customers, you can just slap me down and say we're not in the business of endorsing anybody. Right. So um, speaking of the integrity side and the other things that you guys do, I really appreciate the work you guys do for learning platforms with review my LMS site. I hear a lot of positive feedback from clients, partners that we have and how helpful that can be for guiding people for successful online learning. Definitely part of our the mission there, right? It fits in mm -hmm. with, you know, technology is a big part of how you can improve the reach revenue and impact of what you offer. And so whenever you can help organizations have access to, you know, unbiased reviews, real, uh, you know, other customers who are using a platform, we, we think that can be really helpful in that decision-making process. 
I have to admit that I've never been a fan of these type of sites like Glassdoor, <laughs> but um, we're glad that we were a founding sponsor of uh, Review My LMS because you, you know, you offered to do the case study uh, recently on one of our customers. So thank you very much for that. It's a great story. So kind of diving in the, the case study that we're referring to was with the Institute for Real Estate Management really pivoted, moved all of their in-person classes into an online environment. And they they struck gold when they kind of moved everything over pre-pandemic. And it's it's really fascinating. So I, I encourage everybody to go on to Goris' site and take a look at that case study. Yeah. Talk about getting timing right. That was a... <laughs> right. Yeah. I think we, you know, we had a number of customers like that where now we laugh and we say, gee, you should get a promotion for... Uh, for, for getting your learning platform all set up prior to the pandemic. But uh, I, I don't know if there were stories of people who didn't. I'm sure there are. I'm not sure that I know of them. You know, I think those organizations are, are probably hiding away mm-hmm. and not not raising their hand trying to, but, uh, you know, to, to be known as the people who, who missed the boat on that. But, you know, certainly many organizations that, uh, that did have to make fairly quick pivots, right? They didn't necessarily have the infrastructure in place or had it maybe only partially in place and then had to rapidly expand to really deal with uh, all the demands that this pandemic suddenly thrust on individuals and, and organizations. Thankfully, a lot of organizations had already, you know, made the move, laid some groundwork, and then were able to build on that not only to their organizational success, but also meant that they could support those individuals, right, who, who they needed. So there's certainly that mission component of it as well. I assume you're, you're swamped with work because of the pandemic and everybody wanted to, you know, do the digital transformation if they haven't already. When you look at, uh, when you look at associations, nonprofits and such, uh, because I, I think, I assume your focus is the non-corporate space of online learning. What we call it is we, we say we focus on learning businesses, and it is, uh, as you were describing, you know, it involves associations, it can involve nonprofits. For us, really, what they all have in common is that they are market-facing organizations. So they have to market and sell the learning products and services that they offer, so, you know, versus the kind of more captive audience that corporate L&D might have or, you know, versus academia, of course. So when you look at these learning organizations, I'm assuming you look at them through the, your lens of your learning business maturity model. Can you kind of introduce that to us? Absolutely. The learning business maturity model is something that Jeff and I developed uh, several years ago. Uh, 2016 was when we first put it out. And it really involves um, looking at key capabilities. And we look at those capabilities in five main domains. So it's in leadership, strategy, capacity, portfolio, and marketing. And then we look at those capabilities across, uh, you know, how how well they have capabilities in, in those areas. And, and we divide those into four stages. So the first stage is static, stage two is reactive, stage three is proactive, and stage four is innovative. And so just over our years of consulting and talking to and working with uh, organizations, a lot of them associations, just began to see common issues and opportunities and really felt like the learning business maturity model was a way to sort of lay that out and uh, help to highlight the key areas where we think organizations really have to be focused if they're going to survive. And then beyond that, of course, if they're going to thrive. Was there any particular spur or anything that kind of sparked the idea for you and Jeff to develop the model, the, the learning business maturity model? 
it happened to coincide with uh, one of our place-based events. We were um, offering a place-based event in, in, in Baltimore. And so it really seemed like a great opportunity to be able to introduce the model at that event. And, you know, we're bringing together people who represented these organizations who are all focused on things like leadership and strategy and marketing and portfolio and capacity. And so really being able to help lay it out and give those folks who are at that event um, a common framework some common terminology, a way to help them connect over those days that they had together, but then also to just realizing it more broadly, it just helps organizations and individuals to have this framework to be able to talk to. We talk uh, about kind of the three Ds that the learning business maturity model can help with the three Ds. So it can help with dialogue, you know, so you just have that sort of shared language and it's a way to ask questions of each other and, and have discussion. It's around a diagnosis. So it's trying to look at, okay, which of these areas uh, do we need to give more attention to? Where are we already doing really well? And how can we shore up our successes there? And then it's around direction, right? It's around helping to set some of the strategy and tactical uh, decisions that have to be made to then hopefully progress along that maturity model. So for us, those three Ds, you know, that's what the, the learning business maturity model really helps with. As an academic, I, I love models. And just to put a plug in, way back early in my development there, was the model for software companies in terms of their capabilities. And recently that Microsoft put out a, a SaaS capability maturity model to, you know, like, are you true SaaS or not? That type of thing. So um, just a wonderful framework. It, it just affords really good conversation, something to strive for in terms of the maturity part of it. So I just, you know, thank you for creating this model and, you know, certainly businesses need it and maybe you could address this a little bit but what I like particularly is that you put the word business into a space that maybe doesn't think about business as much so can you talk about why you felt there was a need for that so again our overall focus is on what we call learning businesses and it's absolutely just what you said John that there is a need to recognize the fact that there is a a revenue imperative, you know, for most of these organizations that this is not, you know, learning as a cost center, again, as it might be in corporate L&D, this is really around bringing in that revenue that's the lifeblood of the organization, helping to keep it go so that it can create more, offer more, do more to support the trade field profession that the organization is serving. And so that really is key to who we focus on. And we wanted that to be apparent then in the model as well. And, you know, marketing being one of those, you know, key domains, because I think a lot of times that can get short shrift in terms of, you know, really that need to um, focus on marketing, not only from the promotion side, because I think a lot of times when people think of marketing, they think about the promotion side. And yes, that can get short shrift too, but also marketing from that really broader, deeper perspective of just really understanding the audience that you're serving so that you can then figure out what products and services you need to offer to serve that market. So we try to think about that. I think the space that we live in, the association space, many of them still today, you know, believe it should be a member benefit, that education should be a member benefit. They're reluctant to even talk about it as a business. Do, do you find that? I do think that there are organizations that, yeah, business can be a little bit of a, of a dirty word, right? <laughs> that there's something about, you know, being an association, really wanting to hew closer to that mission commitment. But I think in our mind, you know, they aren't 
at odds, right? You can be both mission driven and you can focus on the business side of things. Because again, even if it's a, a break even approach, I mean, the, the dollars that you're bringing in, or even if it's, you know, a member benefit um, and sort of packaged up with that member cost, that learning is still an important aspect of what that organization offers. And so you need some level of revenue so that you can continue to do that, right? Because that's how you move the needle for individuals to improve their performance, but also, again, the broader profession trade industry by offering education, learning opportunities that are really going to help people improve and do their jobs better. I would assume the pandemic might have caused you to maybe seek out or were hired by maybe reactive clients. So that's stage two in your model. Um, can you tell us how you define that stage in the learning business maturity model? Yeah. So with reactive, and I think that you're absolutely right, Matt, that the pandemic, you know, I think put a lot of people in reactive mode, right? There was suddenly this huge uh, event that we had to react to as individuals, as organizations. It's certainly is something that I think we saw more of, you know, over the last 18 months or, or so. But, you know, in the reactive model, you know, it's not stage one static where, you know, things are really kind of just, uh, you know, fairly dead and not a lot is happening. You know, in the reactive mode, organizations are aware of, of kind of the need to change. But again, it's more in response versus uh, really kind of laying out an approach. So in the reactive phase, for example, leadership, you know, there's there's a vision, but it's usually not very widespread. So it might be a single leader or maybe, you know, a handful of leaders who sort of have a vision, but they haven't done a great job of communicating that more broadly. And they haven't necessarily really laid out a plan for sort of how that vision is going to be accomplished. Similarly, strategy exists, it's there, but it isn't necessarily really differentiating them from other organizations or other providers in the area. Capacity, which for us is about both human resources and technology, sort of all the things you need to be able to execute on your your strategy and, and on your mission and vision. You might have those organizations that are reactive might have adequate capacity for sort of the status quo, but there's really not a lot of bandwidth for improving or making changes. In the portfolio realm, so this is really around the learning experiences, products, services that are being offered, those tend to be, you know, kind of just what the organization thinks learners needs uh, and, and putting it out there versus kind of really being more market focused and really finding out what the learners need and really proactively getting that information. So it's a little bit more of a kind of hands off and, and offering that. And then the marketing tends to not be very uh, sophisticated, right? Like there's some attention to marketing, but it's more kind of like anecdotal what's happening in the market versus them really trying to assess the market on their own and really better understand their audience. But yeah, absolutely. So many organizations because of COVID-19 were put into that reactive stage, having to figure out, okay, now that we can't offer in-person events, what do we do? Um, and so it, it did definitely send a lot of organizations uh, trying to figure out uh, just how to respond. So I'm assuming that organizations often hire you uh, to come in and help them use the model. So can you tell me a little bit about your process and you know how you go, go in? What are the first things that you do with groups? So when we work with an organization around the learning business maturity model, one of the first things we do is, is really focus on the assessments. We've developed an assessment that goes along with the model. And so we want to have a broad range of participants complete that assessment. So you want, you know, the leadership team, but also managers, also individual contributors, because the idea is to really get, you know, as, as close to a sort of that 360 degree view of what's happening in the organization. Because again, as we were 
talking about a minute ago, it, it's possible for for the leadership team to have a very clear vision of, of the strategy and what needs to happen. But if the managers or the individual contributors don't share that same understanding of the strategy or the vision, it's going to be much harder to execute on that and fulfill that. So it really is about getting a, a broad set of folks to complete that assessment and then looking at what you learn from that assessment. So uh, we do ask a couple demographic questions as part of that. So you can then break it out by leadership team uh, versus manager versus individual contributor. So you can begin to sort of understand, is it uh, more of a sort of a, a layered understanding of, of what's happening in the organization? Or is it consistently throughout the organization that everybody understands strategy or everybody doesn't understand strategy as the case might be? And then once we have that assessment, I mean, that then becomes a very, you know, <laughs> fruitful focus for discussion. You know, that first of the, those, those first of those three Ds. So just looking at what that assessment revealed. And then from there, beginning to think about the, the diagnosis. So what does it tell us about what might need to happen and getting to that direction, which begins to lead into some of these, you know, tactical moves around how to, you know, if, for example, capacity is weak. Okay, well, then what are the steps that, that are going to be put in place to try and strengthen that? And then our goal, too, with the assessment is that it's it's very useful up front as a, a kind of an initial temperature taking, but it's something you want to revisit over time so that you're getting that sense of what progress is being made based on what actions have been taken. Would, would you agree that, I mean, at least in my experience, associations typically run very lean in terms of their staff and they're reluctant to sort of build the organization within. Do you see that? I think that can be true. I think that it's, you know, there's so much that gets uh, focused on on sort of the cost savings, right, versus investment, you know, and so there can be about, you know, how are we going to cut costs? So what, you know, what staff positions, you know, don't you fill or, you know, how do you just, so, so I do see that, yes. Focusing a bit more on the five critical domains, so leadership, strategy, capacity, portfolio, and marketing, where do you start? Which, which is the first conversation you have when you dive in and are talking to an association? I can only imagine they all overlap a little bit, and it's not always the easiest path to find. The, the model really is meant to suggest and indicate that really all five of them are critical, right? That um, you sense. can... If, if you if you focus on one at the expense of the others, it, it just doesn't work, right? Because you can have a brilliant strategy, but if you don't have the capacity to execute on that strategy, then, you know, it's not going to do you any good, you know? So it really is about how to keep them balanced. Now, organizations will tend to be, you know, stronger in one or two domains and weaker in one or two domains. And so it really is about trying to understand kind of where you are and which domain so that you can then reinforce where the areas where you're where you're strong and then also improve the areas where you're weak because it really is sort of like it's it's the wheel right if you plot this around you know the five domains kind of around a circle if you are strong in three and weak in two it's a it's a flat circle right it's like a flat tire you can't you can't go anywhere so you really need to kind of the the balance among those uh and and trying to figure out where you are in each so that then you can get them all to the same level of strength, ideally at that, you know, stage four innovative level, ultimately. Putting on the spot a bit here, but do you find that there's maybe one of the domains that has a higher barrier of success where most commonly associations maybe struggle in this one more than others? Just curious. I do feel like marketing is a is an area of just typical weakness. Again, it can be perhaps John, as you were saying, it's, it's, it's an expense area often, right? You know, it, it can take money to, to, 
promote and uh, and to do market assessment and all those things. And so maybe that's part of why it gets um, the short shrift or, or perhaps it's just not a, a thorough understanding of it. I know so many people who land in associations, you know, land there by default. And so then suddenly they're asked to wear all these hats and marketing may be one that now they have to wear without ever really having had any um, training or, or education in that area. That's really interesting. I, I would not have thought that marketing was a key area where you you felt, you know, they, they people or associations needed work. Can you be more specific about what you mean by marketing? Because most organizations, you know, have a, have a marketing department that, you know, they're working away at it. What's the, what's the gap as it relates to the learning business? Where I tend to see the issue is around, it's a, kind of too much emphasis on the promotion of, you know, of the four P's. It really is around that, uh, you know, it's like we've built this, so let's just get the word out. And it's really around driving enrollments or, you know, signups for the conference or whatever it is at that point. And I think that for us, marketing needs to begin much earlier. It really is in that part of that product creation. You know, how, how do you even know what conferences are needed, what, um, which courses are needed, or something else. And I think that's where a lot of organizations don't put enough uh, time and energy and other resources to really, really understand that. I think there can be a lot of just assumption that, oh yeah, we serve you know X field, we know that field, and so you, therefore we know what they need to learn. But I think really digging in and not accepting sort of the easy answers around, well, this is what they need to learn, but really trying to better understand what they need, what they want, and then how to develop products. So it, it's kind of the the earlier end of, of, of the marketing side. Okay. So and what about, what's your reaction to the, the point that associations are often very siloed in their department and very often departments and very often never the, yeah. <laughs> what I've seen, though, is that, you know, the conference people have dominated, right? Everything's about that annual meeting. Do you think that's changed? It will change at all because of the pandemic? Or is that still going to be a, a change management issue? I imagine it will continue to be an issue, but hopefully there will have been some, you know, positive examples that come out of the pandemic. And then the organizations, the associations will begin to appreciate what can be achieved when you uh, break down some of those silos and, and work together. But I do think that's another issue why marketing is sometimes a, a weak spot um, in, in the learning business maturity model for associations is because of the silos, right? So the marketing team may be separate from the education team. And so the marketing team's understanding of, of what the education department is, is offering, you know, may not be as full and robust as needed to really help market those offerings as, as well as, as possible. And so I do think there has to be some continued breaking down of those silos for that to, to work well. You know, I, you may not agree with this, but I often feel that education is treated like a second-class citizen within the association space. Any comments on that? No, I think that it does tend to not get the attention I at least feel it deserves, and it sounds like you, you do too. For me, the education component is so clearly tied to mission for almost every single association. And just given that, given how closely aligned it is with mission, it should not be, you know, treated as that secondhand citizen. But but again, I think that so much focus gets placed on membership, gets faced, placed on that annual meeting sometimes that it does end up overshadowing the education department. And, and it's so ironic because 
the annual meeting, you know, the meat of the annual meeting is the educational sessions. Um, so, and I think hopefully people saw that during the pandemic that, gee, education is really an important part of us, our annual meeting. I think it's also important, though, to look at the silos and the importance that's been built around conferences, annual meetings, those kind of things. Those are learned practices that they've had over time. The, the pandemic has provided an opportunity where everybody looks at it a different lens. And I think it points to how important the learning business maturity model could actually be to buzzword incoming collect non-dues revenue? How can you leverage it in another way and kind of change the way that you're using your education, where you focus, where you collect money, how associations can be effective as a business also? So maybe they can learn new things after pandemic. So let me just a little quiz here. So we've got, we've got static, reactive, proactive, and innovative. So I'm most interested in the innovative. What are they doing that's innovative? Well, again, for us, it's like across all five of the domains, right? So it's yes in the portfolio, but not not to the exclusion of those those other four domains. But, you know, in the portfolio, since you mentioned that, I mean, that's where they really understand learner needs. You know, so they're, they're probably engaging in ongoing, you know, learner needs assessment. They're really clear on what their uh, audience needs and wants. And they're really cognizant of learning theory too, right? I think so many learning businesses don't necessarily understand learning science or aren't good about supporting their subject matter experts or their facilitators and really understanding how learning happens. So for us, innovative organizations really do get that and they place an emphasis on it. They're helping to make sure that anybody involved in the design, delivery, development of their their education really gets that learning theory, learning science and is leveraging it. And they're also... I think really focused on assessment, right? So there's the learning, but then there's the the sort of constant assessment of okay, what what are the results that are coming from you know these these products that individuals are engaging in, and really trying to be focused on some of those metrics and being able to see that progress happening. But again, they would be doing the same types of things in the other four domains as you know as well. So for leadership, that's going to mean that there's a strong leadership team with a clear vision. But it's also shared. So I think that by the time you get to innovative, it's not reliant on a single individual leader, you know, whereas the earlier stages may have more kind of a a lopsided or too much reliance on a single person. Um, So at the leadership for those innovative organizations, it's more of a shared uh, approach. There's a real culture of learning, for example, that the leadership embodies and embraces and and helps uh, get out there. And then I think we've talked a lot about the marketing side. So that's where in those innovative organizations, they're going to be really focused on understanding their market, understanding their competition, understanding what that means for what they should put out into the market to offer. And they're going to be promoting what they do develop well. So again, not not just one of the domains, but really trying to, to get all five of them working together because they do bleed into fuel one another. And so it's really about that kind of well-rounded approach at the innovative level. It is interesting when you look at it from kind of using all five domains. When when I think of our existing core stage LMS clients, the ones who I would lean closer to that innovative level rather than um, being at that proactive level is when they have all five of them covered. So it's really interesting. Um, An example, um, Iram, who we talked about earlier with the case study, um, really have made a lot of moves and they kind of move as a unit. And it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think, you know, from a product portfolio standpoint, which I'm very interested in, we do see a lot of our core stage clients, you know, using the features that we 
that we've built to build innovative products. You know, AVMA has put some investment in in their content, which is great. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've taken a real interest in in how associations manage the the internal experts that they have. I mean, they've got this great wealth of own content areas, which is really interesting. And uh, it just makes a lot of sense that they make investment in those content areas and utilize their their subject matter experts that are members and wanting to volunteer. Um, We see that a lot in the medical space, as I mentioned. So other associations are types of associations that tend to invest in their, what I call their IP or their specialized content that they have within their organization. I'm trying to think about shared characteristics of organizations that do that. And I'm not sure that it's so much around a particular space, like the medical spaces you're talking about, as it, as it is around just, you know, if, if they are further along in the maturity model, then that tends to be part of what they're, they're thinking about is how to make sure that sort of everyone that, that, that they touch and that touches their learning, that they're really investing in them and focused on them, you know, so it does tend to be, of course, organizations that are, um, you know, large enough to have that pool to, to you know, of, of IP and subject matter experts to, to draw on, you know, so national level or international level. But, you know, beyond that, I think it really is more a matter of, of culture and mindset versus, you know, particular industry or, or field. What have you seen in the pricing area? You seen any innovation there? One of the innovations that I'm seeing and that I really appreciate is just the idea of uh, less per offering pricing and more of a bundled or subscription model. And I think that that fits very well with this idea that, you know, learning is not a one-off event. It's an ongoing process. And so to the extent that you're though charging people for these one-off events or one-off experiences for the course or the annual conference, and that's it, then it, it actually is, it's kind of undercutting your message that learning needs to be this ongoing process. So I think organizations that are aligning their pricing with this concept that they deeply believe is true, that learning is an ongoing process. I think that's really a powerful message, right? It helps to reinforce that idea with the the individuals that they're serving that, yeah, you have to keep coming back to this. You know, you can't just come for two days and are we at with, you know, credentialing, creating a credential, creating a certificate? Do you see that as as something that's still alive or are people moving to other things? I think people are going to continue to be interested in that idea of being able to say, look, I have uh, skills and knowledge in a particular area, right? And and so I think certification is going to continue to serve a role and play an important role. I do think that it's interesting to look at kind of what will be the continuing education component of, you know, of certification potentially ongoing. But I think that it's always going to be, even if it's acknowledged as a snapshot in time, I think that people will value this idea of, okay, I I can see that she has these skills because she carries this, uh, you know, credential and that that's going to be meaningful to employers, to individuals looking for employment. So I don't see that going away. Do you have any stories you can share on how associations have been able to charge a premium price, not much profit and just selling webinar or a course for $25 a piece, but kind of a full program or something that that's staple product that associations can deliver? Well, I do think that as part of that subscription or bundle pricing, you know, that can get you to that next level. Because even if, you know, individual learners aren't necessarily going to tune into every single, you know, webinar that your organization offers, they may tune in more than to that single one. So I do think that there Mm -hmm. is, you know, a potential upside for revenue in that something that's other than the, you know, one-off product. And then, you know, it's uh, 
this may be right up there with with business being a bad word, but I do think too there's can be interesting to look at sponsorship and and its relationship to um, you know what an association or other organization is is offering um, that there can be beneficial sponsor relationships. A lot of sponsors come with uh, great examples, case studies, knowledge of of what's going on in the field so they can bring legitimate, valuable content and add that. And they're also looking for, you know, access to the association's learners. And so if they're, you know, willing to pay for that, then it can be one of those kind of win-wins where it, it is both valuable for the learners and valuable for the sponsor and then valuable for the association that's getting that additional revenue as well. So, you know, we just went through the pandemic and, and hopefully we won't have to do that again, but it forced a lot of people online. What do you see as the best that came from that experience? I think that one of the benefits that came from the push to online as a result of the pandemic was just the accessibility side of it, right? That folks who maybe weren't going to be able to attend that place-based conference or that place-based seminar, there was suddenly some of the barriers to that were removed. And so I do feel like there was a an increase in accessibility in the sense of more people could take advantage of associations uh, offerings. And so I think that's a real, a real plus. What do you see the, for the future of online education for nonprofits? I think that we're on the cusp of being able to drop online, right? That I think that our approach to how learning happens is blurring. And so the different um, media that we're using are becoming more and more enmeshed. So even, you know, even place-based, you know, seminars or conferences that have, you know, apps or learning management systems behind them is, you know, and that's how they access the resources or the handouts or a lot of the other content or access discussions that go along with that in-person meeting, but then can continue afterwards and can begin ahead of time so that there's some pre-content happening. So I just think that we're, we're getting close to that point where we're really going to just be talking about education and learning, and it's going to be less of a hard division between, okay, this is online learning, and then this is in-person learning, because we're already seeing that, I think, the last 18 months or so during the pandemic, you know, further kind of blurred some of those those lines. And now as in-person becomes more of an option, uh, again, I think that we're going to hopefully see just a much more thoughtful approach to what happens in person versus what happens online. But I think marrying the two up is going to happen almost across the board. So, so the future looks bright and, you know, I want to thank you and Jeff for all that you do to contribute to innovation in the future in our space. It's certainly an exciting area to be a part of and we appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, John. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate what you guys do to help uh, support associations and other organizations and, and help them find you know, good technology solutions that support them in delivering on their mission. Do you see yourself continuing to do the podcast? And what do you think of it as a format? I mean, do you encourage all associations to have, have robust podcasts? Well, we do plan to continue the Leading Learning podcast. We are... Um, you know, going strong. We were over 270 some episodes at this point. I wouldn't go so far as to suggest every organization, you know, have a podcast, but I think depending on your goals and what you uh, hope to achieve, I think a podcast can be a powerful way to help deliver some learning content. I mean, for us, it's a way to help share 
ideas and research and insights about leading a learning business um, and to make that broadly available. And then on the personal side, it's also a way for us to continue to learn. We get to talk to thoughtful people about what it takes to lead a really successful learning business. And so it's it's a way for us to continue to grow our own knowledge in, in this domain. And so I do think it can be interesting for organizations to think about that kind of both sides. What is it that you can offer your audience, but also what is it that you might gain as an organization by going through the work to put together a podcast? Well, thank you for being a pioneer in that area, leading learning podcasts, check it out. And thank you so much again for being our guest today. Thank you. That was Salisa Steele, co-founder and managing director for Tagoras and Leading Learning. <laughs>